listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. So welcome back to Hacking Humans, where we continue our discussion with Fasuki Shastri. Fasuki, this is the part of the show where we go deep on how practitioners from various fields leverage human and cultural understanding in their roles. So again, coming back to your book, Has Asia Lost It? We see that it's peppered with really interesting human stories that add colour to your very well-researched references and heavy-hitting statistics that obviously underpin each of the core eight circles. So we'd love to know more about how you view those single data points, if you like. So those stories which are often based on your own experiences with the reality of the region. So how significant are they to kind of, the, if you like, the argument in your book and, and in general to the way you approach your work to bring in that kind of humanity to, to, the, to the picture? Yeah, when I originally conceived the book, I thought of it as a monograph I, I saw that really right. as you know a, a book which would have a lot of commentary rather than data statistics and and mm. the human connection. And then I realized that path was completely false because even if I did a polemical piece, a, a, a book half the size of what we have at the moment, uh, it would simply be my view, my take on the world, mm. uh, which you know would be less interesting to anyone uh, from the outside uh, trying to understand the concepts in the book. So then, then of course, I had to focus on uh, the data and the research and what is happening in the region and try to extrapolate and build those uh, uh, proof points. And then I had this uh, fateful uh, ride in a Mumbai auto rickshaw in 2018, which kind of just, just it was an moment of epiphany, which really put the book, uh, uh, which ultimately resulted in, in, in what you have on your shelf, where this very, very interesting, very articulate young auto rickshaw driver, and, and I asked him, you know, I, I typically ask these questions when I meet, uh, 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 when, when I use a taxi or when I'm in a restaurant, uh, uh, love to have conversations with people to get their views on what is happening. So it was in that spirit I asked him how his life was and whether he was benefiting. And at that time, India was fastest growing economy in the G20. And he really, really pushed back. It was a 20-minute ride, a 20-minute ride that I remember mainly because of the scars, emotional scars that are there from that ride. Because he essentially challenged my assumption that in India was doing well, that you know people of his social class ever had an opportunity to to rise up the uh, uh, the economic ladder, hmm. and and it was that single human story that in in a way brought the book together. And then I illustrate many others during the course of the book. I did not want this book to be, uh, uh, I mean, did not want to be a polemical piece or a monograph. I did not want it to be a boring policy or economic when I made the arguments purely looking at econometric data. Hmm. And, you know, my economist friends tell me that there is a lot there in the, in the econometric data, which actually points and highlights uh, towards the same storyline. But ultimately, hmm. I think the story of Asia, or the story of any continent really should be through its people. Hmm. And, and this was a modest attempt on my part in order to tell that story uh, 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 really through the eyes of, 
these invisible class of people that we see across the region who are really toiling away. Uh, Many of them are migrants. And, you know, we simply don't pay enough attention to them. And I hope other people could do more justice in telling their stories and bringing their thoughts and aspirations to the forefront in the region. You mentioned something at the end of the last segment regarding perhaps it being harder to to get access to data on perhaps you know some of those more granular perceptions of of perhaps social issues or whether it's environmental issues how people feel about issues um, and you also said there that you like to kind of pick the brains of taxi drivers restaurant workers so do, you, do you have any other kind of uh, you know I guess ways of immersing yourselves and you you obviously have travelled around the region you obviously you know you grew up in India itself do you is that something you're always on the lookout for to trying to be picking up slices of kind of on the ground sentiment you know local cultural nuance is that is that just simply good practice from your journalist playbook mm. perhaps yeah yeah <laughs> yes I was about to say comes from my experience as a journalist yeah and I must say you know I I did not follow this uh, for a long period when I worked for the IMF, I was very much immersed in the policy setting uh, community. Mm. And I did not spend much time uh, uh, really being on the street. But my experience with the bank, with Standard Chartered Bank, where I ran corporate philanthropy, which really took me away from this comfort zone Mm. and took me to distant parts of of, uh, the bank's footprint, speaking to community workers, visiting projects, speaking to young students, that really, and, and this was not only in Asia, it also was in the Middle East and Africa, gave me a glimpse on on this very, very interesting, smart, well-connected uh, uh, young people who are all struggling and their parents are struggling. And uh, I, I found that, you know, their stories, if you're trying to make sense of what is happening in the country, you read the newspapers, you speak to people, and, I, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. You land in the capital city, you're meeting with this elite policymaking uh, class. By the end of the third day, what you find is you're hearing the same story being repeated over and over again. And there's generally a positive trend line in all of these conversations on which way the country is headed. And then I tried to test this out uh, when I went to Delhi uh, uh, with this very enclosed elitist group. You heard a certain storyline about India. And then I went and visited the community projects, spoke to the NGOs, and they came up with a less hopeful vision for the country. So, you know, it's this this juncture. And we really all should move out of our comfort zones. Uh, I mean, not, not necessary that everyone has to write a book. That is not the point. But in order to really capture what is happening in the country, we need to listen to other voices. And I think the market research community has a huge role to play. I think that's a very interesting point. I think I have to admit, at least from my point of view, I think there is a similar bias in um, in marketing and in market research too, where we tend to um, uh, place more importance on opportunities than on challenges. Uh, I think there's definitely a, a, a valid place for for both, you know, voices, you know, to try and understand um, the richness of what's happening. Uh, but can we take a closer look at uh, at two of the circles that you're talking about in the book and um, try and understand, um, you know, in them in the context of 
the kind of information you bring to life, the information and inspiration from both the man in the street, individual story, that granularity that you're talking about, as well as the kind of the, the bigger the bigger data that you're bringing to life. Um, can we start first with the with the middle class uh, trap one? Uh, it's um, one of our favorites here, I think. Uh, and uh, can you first please uh, explain the term for us and its implications for um, understanding Asia? I think you touched on that, but uh, can we go into a bit more detail, please? Yeah, I mean, at a very human level, and I think uh, um, I, I grew up in, in India, which is very, very different from the India that we have uh, uh, on this day today. You know, I, I grew up mm. in a low-income country, very high rates of poverty. I think 55% of the population was living below the poverty line in the early 1960s uh, uh, when, I was, when I was a young child. And the question that our parents' generation uh, uh, really asked and challenged themselves was, can we, can we invest in education? Can we invest in better health? for our children so that their lives and their economic opportunity would be significantly better from from us from 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 the parents generation and i think to a very very large measure parents across developing and developed asia from that generation can can take a lot of confidence can be very proud of the fact that mainly because of the positive economic uh, 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 conditions in the region, that there was economic opportunity, that the children did benefit uh, from this economic growth and became more socially mobile as a result. So if mm. you fast forward to today, if, if you've got a low-income family, uh, either in Jakarta or in Hanoi or, or, or in Mumbai, when they ask themselves the question, and, and the difference this time, I think, compared with my generation, is you know education is more widespread, it's more accessible in developing Asia today than it was in my in my in in my time, uh, where college education was still very much an elitist pursuit. Uh, right now, you know, any Asian city uh, you go into, there are literally 50, 60, 70 educational institutions. Yeah. Offering all kinds of uh, graduate degrees, undergraduate degrees. I see one thing that I do when I go into Asia is look at the posters on the walls, and then you find, you know, master's degree in event management, for example. That certainly was not there during my time. So, so the question is: Is all of this education opportunity? Is this massification of uh, higher education? Is that providing uh, economic opportunity for the incoming generation? And the answer is no. Uh, uh, the Indian Railways, I cite that example uh, in, in, in the book, where the Indian Railways offered clerical level uh, uh, jobs uh, and, and over a million people applied uh, uh, for, for positions that were in the uh, double digit. In, in China, you've got this new probably not a new phenomenon, it's a new phenomenon because journalists have discovered it. There is a class of young people who essentially want to chill and not do anything because they find the prospect of accessing opportunities so challenging and daunting that, that they simply just want to uh, do the bare minimum. And you find that, you know, in places like Hong Kong, 
uh, we should talk a little bit uh, uh, perhaps about the protests in 2019 on the extradition bill. But I see it really through the lens of young people in Hong Kong, in Thailand, where there have been sustained protests, even in Myanmar, even though the coup was the provocation for the protests. But the kind of people who have shown, shown up in Yangon and Mandalay are all educated people who feel that mm. this coup really is destroying economic opportunity. So the path forward for an aspirational, vibrant middle class in developing Asia, I think that path is going to be filled with obstacles. It can be removed, right? So all of this is resolvable. If policymakers really paid a little bit more attention on the drivers of social mobility. Now, this does not mean, for example, that you, I'm, so I'm certainly not arguing for wealth redistribution, uh, which is one big debate that is happening in the US and Europe, that one way of ensuring middle class uh, uh, growth is you re redistribute wealth. But I think Asia is fortunate in still having high rates of economic growth. So they've got to figure out how do you translate these growth rates into equity? And how do you then, you know, uh, World Economic Forum has this uh, uh, absolutely high number of estimates of how large the size of the middle class can be. I mean, mm. they say across the region, it can be 1.75 billion. I mean, that's probably pie in the sky thinking at this point in time, because the actual middle class numbers are pretty low. But if you don't have a, a, a vibrant middle class, if you don't have pathways for low-income families to rise, what you're going to have is stalling social mobility, and then over a period of time, you're going to have social unrest. And, and one lesson that Asia should learn from Arab Spring of 2011 is when you've got a large number of disaffected young people on the streets without adequate job opportunities, that usually translates into social chaos over a period of time. I was reading about some, something you mentioned earlier about the Tangping uh, phenomenon in China, the kind of the, the, lying, the lying flat, the lying back people. I think something reminiscent of the hikikomori phenomenon in Japan from the 90s, yeah, which was, again, something in, in response to that uh, big economic growth and kind of young men, I think, some, sometimes referred to as failure to launch you know, these days, you know, kind of in protest against consumerism and, you know, the lack of desire to, you know, compete in a in an environment that they generally see as not fair, yeah? Um, but um, I wanted to, to, to ask you about, uh, so you're talking about this, you know, over-reliance on growth metrics and how, and the failure of um, converting that into opportunity, into equity, and the lack of the lack of social mo mobility there. Um, I know that you know sometimes uh, what two uh, two numbers that are pitted against each other are you know GDP growth versus happiness, and we are aware of, of of some issues with with measuring happiness too, happiness or well being. Yeah, it's sort of a very kind of uh, subjective, potentially lending itself naturally to kind of, you know, you know, falling towards the, the, the medium kind of range uh, versus GDP, which is kind of very easily measurable and, and obviously growing over time. Um, but 
what uh, what would you propose would be a viable way to you know to um, first to um, measure uh, opportunity to measure equity one and two to get out of the middle class muddle that you're talking about in the book where you know we're not really comparing apples with apples where we're looking at kind of a big chunk of that lower middle class in Asia versus the kind of the more um, economically viable middle class in the West? Yeah, I think, you know, happiness is also an aspiration. <laughs> and, mm. and happiness, of course, is a state of mind. But I think if you look at uh, raw, uh, there's plenty of economic data which can guide us on this journey. I would say the U UN Human Development Index is one very, very powerful uh, a set of data mm. which receives very little attention in Asia. And if you, if you really drill down and look at the data, and really it's things like infant mortality, uh, it, it has a lot to do with uh, 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 economic mobility. And I think if policymakers, and of course right now you've got this UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are set to serve as a guide for policymakers in order to improve economic outcomes uh, for the population. So I think by simply realigning the focus from economic growth into saying we're really going to focus on quality and equity, we're going to make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, if Bangladesh is growing at 8% uh, 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 every year, which is, which is phenomenal, and Bangladesh needs that high level of economic growth for a sustained period of time, in order to meet its own aspirations of becoming a middle-income country. But, you know, is growth in Bangladesh leading to better social outcomes? Is opportunity being captured by this uh, rentier class and by the political class? And we're seeing these common trends across developing Asia, where, you know, the billionaire class and the political class, uh, their interests appear to be aligned. There is less transparency, for example, in public projects, bidding for infrastructure projects, and ultimately people pay that price. And ultimately that does lead to lower, lower social mobility numbers. So all that governments need to do is to redirect attention, not necessarily to do this uh, from a redistribution framework, even though I think it'll be wonderful if all Asian billionaires uh, uh, paid their income taxes treated their employees fairly, did not damage the environment. That would be, that would be a great uh, place to start. Uh, mm. but, but simply modulating and calibrating uh, uh, the annual budget uh, that the finance ministries put together to make sure there's sufficient investment in education and health. And I think this blind focus on university education, I think there needs to be some kind of a restructuring of that. I think what Asia needs is vocational training institutes across mm -hmm. the region where you're training people, particularly at a time of disruption from uh, technology and automation. Uh, you, you need this very nimble network of vocational training institutes, which really can take people on for you know short or long duration of time, retrain them with new skills so that they are ready for the job market of the future. So, all governments really need to do is to refocus their energies and attention and get away from this, this single metric that they pride themselves on, economic growth. Is, you know, that needs to change, definitely.
And actually, uh, Basuki, you, you just mentioned there that the rise of, of future tech and you discuss in the book how the rise of future tech uh, is a particularly big risk for the job prospects of this Asian you know, emerging middle class, especially when such tech is well suited to, I think, what you describe as powerful, narrow, task-specific applications. So can you just tell us a little bit more about how big an issue you think this is and uh, are, are people uh, even... Uh, being prepared for uh, what is perhaps an imminent threat to, you know, their economic prospects? Yeah, I mean, let's tease out a few trends uh, at the start. Mm. Demographics, right? So from a pure demographic perspective, India and Indonesia are in this sweet spot that they essentially have got this surplus army of young, uh, 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 of young unskilled and skilled labor which will allow these two countries to grow for the next three, four decades. They're in this perfect sweet spot, which is in sharp contrast to China, Korea, and Japan. And you know, China may well age more rapidly before it becomes a, a, a rich nation. Mm. So the particular set of challenges here is, will technology and automation sufficiently disrupt developing Asia's economic model that you know, countries need to worry about uh, uh, social transfers, and and you don't want countries, and I think no country in the region, including Japan, including China, with its three trillion dollars in foreign reserves, can ever be prepared for mass technological disruption, which displaces hundreds of millions of people, and you know you need to you need to make social transfers. Uh, to look after this population. There isn't any country uh, uh, that really is prepared for this. You know, people talk a lot about uh, universal basic income, the fact that, you know, you've got to be prepared for a a world uh, where people will perhaps work three days a week, but will be compensated by the state. But, you know, the fiscal numbers are really, really horrifying. uh, And the numbers simply don't end up. So countries need to prepare for this technological transition that is going to come. My fear about Asia is this transition, this disruption is going to take place in labor-intensive industries like construction, like nursing care, where you've got routine tasks Mm. which will be replicated uh, by the machines. So what happens when, you know, arguably uh, we are many years away from uh, driverless cars uh, what happens, uh, uh, you know, you, you have all these social mobility, these mobility apps in the region now, which is providing jobs for literally thousands upon thousands of uh, educated uh, workers, you know, who are doubling down as drivers, who are doubling down as delivery persons. What happens uh, to them if, if their uh, functions become completely automated? Now, Asia has a bit of time, like the rest of the world has a bit of time. Uh, this is this is not imminent. It probably will happen in the next decade. But they need to prepare the population through better communications, certainly through better skills training. And I see that is not happening systematically across the region. I think China is one country which is really fretting about this. If you read through all the policy documents, uh, coming out of Beijing, I think they worry about you know China's ability, for example, from moving from middle-income country status to an advanced economy status. You know that that's a different set of policy challenges that Beijing has to deal with. 
But at the same time, at the time of technological disruption, how do you make sure that everyone is gainfully employed? And there isn't enough debate, I would argue, in the region. For example, in Singapore and Hong Kong, you've got this vast army of uh, foreign labor uh, who, who do, who, you know, uh, who are in manufacturing, who certainly undertake domestic work. And it's not that uh, uh, these jobs are about to be disrupted, but I think the pandemic has really shown what the social risks are when you've got millions upon millions of foreign workers on your shores and you don't have a very easy public health response mm. uh, to deal with you know, pandemic spread in Singapore dormitories, for example. So I think all of these policy questions, uh, there are no easy answers. Uh, but you know, one way of getting to that answer is more rigorous debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly, I hope the thought leadership mafia will take the lead <laughs> in bringing, bringing attention to these issues. Let's move on to another of the circles of hell, uh, so to speak. Uh, um, so the, one of those is titled To Be a Teenage Girl in, in Rising Asia, uh, where you discuss gender inequality through angles such as the meta preference for sons in so many Asian markets, the bride shortage crisis and the travesty of girls not getting their fair shot at education. In the, in the book, you conclude that developing Asia needs social transformation on a dramatic scale, a true cultural revolution led by women and supported by fathers, brothers, sons to agitate for change and deliver results on the ground. So essentially bottom-up citizenry rather than perhaps from Asia's leadership or political leadership. So can you tell us more, um, Basuki? Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, but can you tell us more why you feel change can or, or can only perhaps come um, in regards to gender inequality in, in that way? Yeah, I think social transformation can never be mandated from the top. Mm. I mean, if you look at the levers of social transformation in China or India over the last few decades, right? I mean, it was really pathways to economic reform, pathways towards political reform. Mm -hmm that over a period of time uh, led to a change in aspirations, right? If you were a young person growing up in Beijing in, in the 1970s, uh, before uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping implemented those dramatic reforms, I think your worldview, your aspirations, your thoughts about where your future is going to be is dramatically different from a similar person growing up in uh, Beijing today. Uh, because the economic reset and the economic transformation has really led to a, a, a class uh, of, of young people with these rising aspirations. And I think these things really get magnified if you're a young woman, uh, if you're certainly a, a young woman from a disadvantaged economic background, where the ladder for economic opportunity uh, while it might be difficult even for your peers, even for your male peers, but at least they've got a pathway out, either through a college degree, either through you know getting a job uh, uh, at a very early stage in life. But the opportunities for teenage girls from these backgrounds, and, and the reason why social transformation and a change in attitude is so important and why it is important to happen from the ground up rather than being mandated from the top, is you know, these girls are being deprived on a daily basis. And, and you know, so when we talk about uh, uh, can Asia grow its way 
out of a future crisis where technological disruption is upon us, you're really going to further disadvantage this group because you haven't given them the tools right now, uh, tools for education, tools for economic opportunity, mm-hmm. mentorship and training that the male peers uh, uh, to a large extent already enjoy. Right, So there's inequity uh, at, at ground level. So in order to change that, you, you really need to change social attitudes. And I don't think there can ever be in any country uh, legislation to change social attitudes. You can ban certain practices, right? For example, you can ban the practice of, uh, of teenage brides, and that certainly happened uh, across the region. It's certainly being violated as well across the region. So it's very, very difficult to mandate from the top. So that is why you need families, in effect, to change, to change. And their families will change when they see that the neighbors are, are changing their mm-hmm. attitudes towards, you know, allowing young women not only to graduate from middle school or, or high school. And you see the drop-off rate really, really, really rises sharply for, for young women uh, after they graduate from school. So how do you build those pathways hmm. for them to graduate and then access uh, economic opportunity? And if the region does not do this, and you know the most uh, uh, tragic thing about China is even under Mao's China, there was greater social equity uh, between men and women than what you have today. So China has kind kind of reverted back to the mean mm-hmm. uh, pre-communist China, where there was where, where there was inequity between men and women. So social transformation has to happen through Greta Thunberg type social revolutions. So, and and I've met you know, mainly because of the job that I had at the bank. Mm-hmm. I've had an opportunity to to meet many of these disadvantaged teenage girls across many countries, and, you know, they're razor sharp. They're ready to navigate this complex world. And if all that we need to do is really to step aside and give them that opportunity. Mm. And, and it, would be a, it would be a tragedy if that does not happen. Mm, here, here. I was going to actually ask you about something else in, in the book where you touch on, um, you know, policies such as womenomics, uh, obviously trialed in the likes of, of Japan. But I, I know that Drago has an interesting uh, angle of his own as well to, to bring up uh, from a kind of a, a cultural point of view as well from, from the Japanese side. So perhaps, Drago, you could touch on that as well. Yeah, well, I first think womenomics effect was was uh, exaggerated, but um, I'm not I'm now doing um, some research on young women in uh, Japan, and as part of my uh, preparation for the research, I was I was reading a novel called Breasts and Eggs by Miyako Kawakami, a Japanese uh, author, uh, and it's 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 a very interesting book where the male uh, the, the the main characters are women. And men only appear in the book as kind of, you know, as, as uh, rapists, as absentee dads or sperm do- donors. So a very limited presence for men is sort of in a, in a very kind of female dominated world. So I think, you know, what we're seeing here is kind of the more developed side of it, going back to your dysutopia uh, model in, in the more developed part, part of Asia, uh, women can afford to follow a different trajectory and kind of lead independent lives without falling into that trap of kind of non-paid labor, childcare without support and all that stuff. But in a, in the developing part of Asia, as you said, that road hasn't, you know, hasn't 
you know, it's not that it's 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 not been paved yet. It's not really quite there yet, is it? No, I was just going to add uh, that you know I think Japan is a very interesting example, where you know the hype and the hoopla about women women and you know Prime Minister Abe did the absolutely right thing yeah. in focusing attention, but it looks like it's running out of steam. Mm. I mean, you don't see much uh, 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 debate at this point in time. On, on bringing more women into the work, even though Japan faces a more acute mm. demographic shock, which argues for urgent action to bringing more women into the workforce. I think in 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 Japan's case, if from from my point of view, uh, there, there is data, you know, being quoted that something like three three plus million women did join the workforce under Abe. But I think we need to be very careful with that because most of them were was was not regular work. Uh, and w- which actually can, in some way, even exacerbate the problem further, uh, because of the existing wage gap in Japan, because of the existing lack of opportunities. Uh, in effect, denying women better opportunities by, you know, putting them into that different box there. Just, just for something of a, of a bonus question to finish off this segment, Vasuki. So obviously in, in the book you finish off talking about a potential Asian renaissance and much in the way, the same way that the Black Death or the bubonic plague perhaps signaled the European renaissance. You, you see COVID-19 as, as perhaps a trigger and it's something Drago and I have explored in our, in our own research, even for this podcast, looking at the impact of, of COVID on people's lives. So, um, you know, just, just without going into too much depth, I just wanted to quickly get to take on the the optimism, if you like, that your 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 book finishes with, and, and the sense of of COVID perhaps being a, a reset for for positive change uh, moving forward. Yeah, I think you know, pandemics and natural disasters over centuries have have led to social transformation and political transformation. Uh, and I think looking at uh, COVID nineteen, I think it's simply difficult to predict which way uh, uh, this transformation is going to take place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people have come out of this, or people are still suffering through this incredibly difficult. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of us who were born in the post-World War II generation, I think we went through several decades thinking, never again will we face the same challenges, you know, as our parents, uh, as our grandparents. Mm -hmm did in the 1930s and and even before that. So this is one of those moments, I think, for our generation, which will be completely transformational in terms about how we think about our own lives, but even how, how we think of our country and how we think about our political leaders. And I think over, you know, the 2008 global financial crisis, uh, uh, there was a lot of talk that, you know, because there was a relatively smart economic recovery two years after that crisis in in, in the US, uh, there was a view, a very naive view, that you know uh, the financial crisis would not have any social impact. Uh, but arguably, the rise of Trump eight years later, I think was only made possible because of GFC. And, and Brexit happened only because uh, of the economic crisis that the UK faced in 2008. Mm-hmm. So there is a long tail impact of these uh, uh, pandemics and natural disasters and economic crisis. We simply don't know at this early stage how it's going to manifest itself. But even if I were a political leader in in, in Asia today, uh, I should certainly be worried about social cohesion and political cohesion 
coming out of this pandemic. So, you know, there needs to be a, a distinct change in the social compact uh, going in for the next few years. Fantastic, Vasuki. So we would love to unpack the other chapters of the book with you, but alas, it's time to move on to another inferno of sorts, uh, Brand Burns. Um, please stay tuned for our third and final quickfire segment. Mm-hmm. 